Well, the decision had been made. The troops had been deployed. The battleships were on their way. Nearly three million soldiers were preparing to slam against Hitler's Atlantic Wall in France. D-Day was set into motion. Responsibility for the invasion rested squarely on the four-starred shoulders of General Dwight D. Eisenhower. The general spent the night before with his troops, with the men of the 101st Airborne. They like to call themselves the Screaming Eagles. As his men prepared their planes and checked their equipment one more time, Ike went from soldier to soldier, offering words of encouragement. Many of the flyers were young enough to be his son. A correspondent wrote that Eisenhower, uh, as, as I, Eisenhower watched the C-47s take off into the night, his hands were sunk deep in his pockets and his eyes were filled with tears. He turned from that airstrip and went into his quarters and sat at a desk. He took out a pad of paper and a pen and he began to write a message. A message to the White House. A message that was to be delivered in the event of a defeat. It was as brief as it was courageous. Our landings have failed. The troops, the air, and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches itself to the event, it's mine alone, he wrote. You know, it could be argued that the greatest act of courage that day did not take place in a cockpit or a foxhole, but at a desk where the one who was in charge took responsibility for the ones who were below. When the one in charge took the blame, even before the blame needed to be taken. Rare leader, this General Eisenhower. Unusual, this display of courage. He modeled a quality that is seldom seen in our society that's full of lawsuits and dismissals and divorces. Nobody wants to take responsibility, right? <laughs> Most of us are willing to take credit for the good that we do. A few are, might be willing to take the rap for the bad that we do. Few will assume responsibility for the mistakes of others. And fewer still will shoulder the blame for mistakes still uncommitted. Eisenhower did. And as a result, he became a hero. Jesus did, and as a result, he became our Savior. Before the war began, Jesus forgave us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before a mistake could be made, forgiveness was offered. Before blame could be given, grace was provided. The one at the top took responsibility for the ones below. Thank you, Jesus. Therefore, as a result of that action, Paul would take up his pen in Romans chapter 5. He would write, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by grace, by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. <laughs> does that not suggest that the one at the top took responsibility for the ones at the bottom? Absolutely. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every word Every nuance, every expression in this passage is critically important to us, pregnant with meaning. And it suggests that the one at the top took responsibility for the ones at the bottom. And man, we're at the bottom. Therefore, since we have now been justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, and we were, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know, I read a passage like that and I think, you know, I wish I was Irish because I'd do a little jig, you know, a little happy dance because that's, that's good news, isn't it? Is that good news? Amen. That's the gospel. Romans 5 begins with a ringing affirmation of the legal standing that we enjoy as Christians, that through faith in Christ we have been justified and we have been declared righteous before God once for all. Amen. Love it. We no longer live under the fear of judgment. We no longer live under the wrath of God. Why? Because we have peace with God. Peace with God. Not just the subjective feeling of peace, although that, that comes too, but we're talking here about the, the objective reality of peace with God. The war is over. It's done. It's finished. Jesus paid it all. He paid the price. And the people of God rejoice not only in future glory, Romans 5 says, and we look forward to that more and more as the older we get. We look forward to that day when Jesus comes back for His own we rejoice not only in the future glory of God, but also in our present, uh-oh, there's that word, sufferings. Isn't that what Romans 5 says? Yeah? And, and we, we rejoice in our present trials and sufferings, not because we're whacked out, 
masochists or something like that, but rather because trials are pleasant because they, they produce a step-by-step -step transformation that makes us more like Jesus. So these sufferings and afflictions and trials and tribulations in this life can be our friends because they bring us closer to God. Am I right? I'm just echoing what I believe the Scripture is teaching. And that's the Gospel. And this good news was not designed just to make us happy, but to make us holy. To help us understand that there is a deeper purpose in life than happiness. This past week, many of us were stunned, stunned, as we listened to some of the teaching that comes from one of the largest churches in America. The speaker, standing beside her husband on stage in front of thousands, said, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen? I'm going, are you kidding me? That is not the Gospel. At least it's not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the Gospel of self-exaltation. It's the Gospel of happiness. It's the Gospel of idolatry, really, is what it is. It elevates man above God. You're not, when you come to church, when you, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really? Jesus did not die on the cross to make us happy. Although that's a byproduct, and very often it is a byproduct. He, he died to make us holy. He died to save us and set us apart so that we could be all the, that God wants us to be as men and women of God. And in this present life, that may include suffering and difficulty and tribulation from time to time. Before the war be, even began, Christ forgave us. Before a mistake could be made, Forgiveness was offered. Before blame could be attached, grace was provided. So we, we've now been justified. Justified by His blood. Made right in the sight of God by His blood. And the fruit of the vine that we use in our communion services uh, is symbolic of that blood. It helps us to remember the blood of Jesus Christ. And the one who was at the top and took responsibility for the ones who are below. So as we celebrate communion this morning, we want to try and set aside all of the distractions of the week and just really focus on giving thanks to God for the redemption, for the reconciliation, for the justification that we have in Christ, for the forgiveness for our sins and for salvation and the hope and the healing that is ours in Christ Jesus. So let's bow our heads and pray together. Gracious Father, we, we come to you now with our heads bowed and our hearts full of thanksgiving and praise and adoration.
You are righteous, Lord, and you are holy. Your works are awesome and powerful. Your deeds are righteous in all the earth, in every culture, all of the time, everywhere. And as we come, Lord, we, we come on bended knee, confessing our sins to You again this morning. Even though we have a certain hope of future glory, and even though we have eternal life because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and even though You've secured our citizenship in heaven, and even though You've reserved a place at the banqueting table for us, we still turn away from You. I don't know why. Because we think we're smarter or wiser or more clever. Our ways are better than Your ways. I don't know. But if anything, it only proves that how much we need a Savior and how much we need Your forgiveness each and every single day. And that includes today. And so we come. Lord, we come to confess our sins to You now and seek Your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we have sinned against You in word and thought and deed even since the last time we got together for worship. And so we ask, would You please forgive us? Would You place all our iniquity, all our sin under the precious blood that flows from Calvary's mount. Lord, we need Your forgiveness way more than we desire even our own happiness. Thank You. Thank You for Your life. Thank You for Your death. Thank You for taking responsibility for the ones below. That's us. Thank You for the resurrection and for the power that flows into our lives because of the Gospel. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Amen and Amen.